You are listening to the Bethel Church Sermon Podcast, a ministry of Bethel Church in Yale, South Dakota. Uh, you can find the, the notes for the, the sermon by scanning the, the QR code there in your notes. Uh, there were some copies that were printed out, I believe. There was also a, uh, a different sheet for kids, um, although adults may want to use that other sheet as well. So lots of options to, to take notes just, by, just besides the, the notebook that you may bring on your own. So a number of things there. John chapter 3. I'm going to pick up in verse 22. If you would stand with me as we read scripture together. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside and remained there with him and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Aenean near Selim because the water was plentiful there and people were coming to be baptized. For John had not yet been put in prison. Now, a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification, and they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear witness, bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning. We thank you for your, your word, Lord. We pray that you would bless its, its reading. We pray that you would bless the, the proclamation, the preaching of it. Lord, we, we think of our church and we think of the, the word that we heard in the, in the short video there. That sometimes we, we get this idea that we need to, to dress it up to make the, the king, the bridegroom more beautiful more appealing to people. But Lord, we pray that it is your spirit that works in the heart of your people. Lord, may the, the proclaimed word this morning exalt Jesus Christ, that he might be seen as, as thoroughly beautiful. Lord, we pray that you would be with those who are those who we know that are, that are sick, those who are ill, those who are recovering. Lord, we pray that you would be with um, our church in a, in, in a special way. Lord, we pray that you would uh, bless what is, what is given, the money that is given this morning. I thank you so much for those who, who continue to, to give week in and week out who are so faithful. And we pray that you would just continue to, to bless that, that our church would have its hand in, in, in different ministries to exalt the, the name and person of Jesus Christ. Lord, we, we thank you so much for that. And we pray that you would continue to bless us so that we might be able to give faithfully. Lord, we pray that you would just 
put your hand on our service now. Guide it like only you can for your honor, your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Maybe seated. In the annals of Persian kings, there is a story about uh, one of King Cyrus's generals. Cyrus, if you remember, was a king mentioned in Isaiah who ruled several hundred years before Jesus. In this story, one of the general's wives um, committed a treasonous act. And she was put on trial, and she was condemned to die. And at first, her husband didn't even recognize what was going on. He, he had been gone. He had been away. And, in, and he's, as he learned about it, and he was told about it, he burst into the throne room of, of Cyrus unannounced. A bold move, no doubt. And at that point, he threw himself on the floor before Cyrus. And he's cried, O king, take my life instead of hers. Let me die in her place. Cyrus, by all accounts, was a fair and humane king. He was generally touched by this man's love for his wife. And he said, uh, love like this must not be spoiled by death. And he gave the, the husband back his wife. He pardoned them. He let them go free. And as they walked away, the husband said to his wife, did you see how kindly the king looked upon us when he gave us that pardon? And the wife responded to the husband by saying, I had no eyes for the king. I saw only the man who was willing to die in my place. I think the story there really captures the, the idea and helps illustrate and, and understand how, how Jesus Christ is this, this great lover, this great bridegroom and, and husband, the provider for the church. For Christ not only offered himself in, in our place, but he actually died for us in order that he might present us to himself as holy and blameless and radiant without stain or blemish. Just listen to Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 27. So that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. So I, I think we, we grasp this from the way John uses this analogy and from other places, as we'll see, but as the, the bride of, of Christ, our hearts and our minds and, and our souls are, are fixated on him. And the question is, why? And, and the, the simple answer is because we are taken with the one who is willing to die in our place. Before we get too far ahead of ourselves and start thinking about ourselves in relation to the bridegroom, we need to think about what this analogy and what it teaches us about Jesus. For John here, it was important to point out that the bridegroom was Jesus. And specifically, that Jesus is God here. The the comparison that, that John the Baptist used here in, in reference to Jesus and the, the bridegroom wasn't something new. In fact, it was an application of the Old Testament. And the point is made that in the Old Testament, uh, Yahweh, the, the God of Israel, is the bridegroom. 
As we go back into the Old Testament, we go all the way back to, to Exodus, for instance, where the, we have the giving of the law, and we read there over and over that the people are not to worship any other god beside, besides the, the God of Israel, besides Yahweh. And the reason that they are given is that God is a jealous God. In fact, in Exodus 30, we learn that the people are not to make treaties with those who lived in the land because they prostitute themselves to other gods and even sacrifice to other gods. It's interesting that the language that is used there. If people were to make these treaties and have these relationships to other land and they would marry off their, their sons or, or their daughters, then the daughters would prostitute themselves to these other gods and would lead their sons to do the same. Of course, it isn't spelled out explicitly that God is the bridegroom. But the implication is rather clear in that when Israel worships other gods, that's the same as going after another woman. Going after somebody else. A woman going after somebody who is not her husband, not one's wife. It is, it is referred to as, as spiritual prostitution or harlotry. In the book of Deuteronomy, we have this same picture, but it changes a little. It becomes more prophetic. God says uh, through Moses in Deuteronomy uh, 31.16, he says, Behold, you are about to lie with your fathers. In other words, he's about to die. Then this people will rise and whore after foreign gods among them in the land that they are entering. And they will forsake me and break my covenant that I have with them. Then in Isaiah, the, the language becomes clear. In chapter 54, verse 5, for instance, you have, for your maker, your husband, the Lord Almighty is his name. And in 62, 5, as a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. The comparison is used more frequently in, in Jeremiah and Ezekiel. And then finally, we have this in the story of Hosea. In that book, the, the connection is very clear. God is the faithful husband and lover of Israel, and the unfaithful wife, Israel, is his bride. When we put all of this in the context of the, the words of John the Baptist in John chapter 3, it is clear that he's identifying Jesus as God. Now, we don't know what, what those at the time would have, would have understood when they, they heard this, what have they made all of these connections right in the, the moment? I'm guessing that as they thought about these words, they probably uh, would have at some point, but it doesn't really matter. The connection is here, and it's very clear that Jesus is the bridegroom, the bridegroom is God, and the people that go after, the people that should go after the bridegroom because anything else amounts to spiritual idolatry. Now, there's a, a second feature of this bride bridegroom imagery, and that was that was what we might refer to as uh, the the church as the Lord's bride, the one for whom Christ died. She she's married to him, and and she is called to be faithful. This is the other side of the, the coin, right? We've just thought about the fact that in the bridegroom imagery, that the the bridegroom is is the Lord. When then his bride, the church, and like Israel, the church is called to be faithful. 
We see this analogy frequently in the New Testament. For instance, 2 Corinthians 11, verses 2 and 3, we read, For I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband, to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Remember, this is Paul speaking, and the divine jealousy that he's speaking of is his own. He's he's saying that he, he feels like God here in some respect, that just as God is a jealous God and does not want uh, people to give their worship to another, he too does not want to see the church that he established in Corinth prove to be unfaithful to the Lord Jesus Christ. So how does this unfaithfulness in the church happen? But it occurs when the church, as one pastor put it, it happens when the church adopts another Jesus, another spirit, another gospel as its message. So the church, according to the Apostle Paul, can be faithful to the Lord Jesus, but can also be unfaithful. The church can commit spiritual adultery, and it does this by departing from the Jesus of the Bible. Now, just to make something clear, just because one says, well, this is what Jesus would do, and uses that to justify their certain belief or behavior, doesn't mean that they haven't strayed. I would say that there's a lot of churches that have strayed in in this regard, but use Jesus as their pawn. They say, well, Jesus would do this or, or that. He would accept these people. He would not judge that, whatever it is. I don't want to get into specifics because... I don't want to get off on a rabbit trail, but I I think you get the point. The the point is not what we think about Jesus. It's not that we can use Jesus to, to, to bolster our own thoughts and opinions, but the point is how he is presented in the Scriptures, the witness concerning himself in the Bible. And, of course, we know that all of the Scriptures are about Jesus, We know that Jesus is the divine word of God and that what we have here in in the Bible is God's word as if it was spoken to us by Jesus himself. So when the church departs from the written word of God, she proves to be unfaithful to her bridegroom. Of course, we must ask if the church has done this We must ask if the church, by and large, in our day has done this. We must ask if our own church is proving to be unfaithful, and we must ask the same question concerning ourselves. In fact, this is a question that must be asked in every age. On Wednesday nights, we've been talking about the church and the the foundation that it was built on. In fact, that clip at the beginning was from the, the series that we've been watching We've seen through the history of the church, the foundation had, had gradually shifted from the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone to something else. Right away in church history, the, the foundation started being built actually on the church itself and specifically on the Bishop of Rome. And this is why there was such a need for reformation to see the church's sole foundation is set on Scripture itself. This is why the, the Reformation, we have the, the doctrine of the, the doctrine of sola scriptura developed or recovered. That the Scriptures were the sole supreme authority when it comes to, to all matters of faith and practice. 
And this was so important because diverging from this foundation meant spiritual adultery, that we were going after another. It meant that the Lord Jesus Christ wasn't the chief cornerstone, that we've replaced the the bridegroom with, with something else that we thought would be just as good. We're trying to dress it up in a way that shouldn't be done. James Boyce said it this way, we must counter such trends with the insistence that membership in the church of Christ Jesus involves great ethical and doctrinal responsibility as well as high privileges. The point that he's making here is a very good one, and that is if we are going to ask if the church today has become an unfaithful bride, we must turn and and recognize that there is a lot of responsibility when it comes to the church. We must believe right. We must act right. And it all becomes back down to the foundations of the, the Scriptures. If the church doesn't believe that the Scriptures are of supreme importance, or if they say that they're important, but then end up believing and doing what is convenient, or twisting and reinventing the meaning of the Scriptures to go along with what they believe is important, however it works, it's taking and it's moving and shifting that foundation. Or perhaps, to be more accurate, it's even building a new foundation. And it's what the Bible calls spiritual prostitution. So when it comes to the church, this image of Christ and the bridegroom and the church as the bride is is so important. Faithfulness to Christ is, is, is central. So many times our, our focus is so shifted and we end up being faithful to our own motives and our own desires, even under the guise of being spiritual. So we must ask the question, are we being faithful? There's another way that the imagery of the bride and the bridegroom is important to note. And that is that it it, it speaks about sexual morality and the standard of Christian marriage. Of course, this follows with what we've already talked about concerning the church. Concerning that God is the bridegroom and that any pursuit of another in that regard is the same as going after another. The institution of marriage is built around this concept. Marriage is a display of Christ and his church. We'll get into this in in a moment, but let's just back up and, and recognize that this subject of sexual morality and the standard of Christian marriage is, is something that is fought against today in, in ways that really couldn't have been dreamed of not all that long ago. I'm not saying that sexual morality and the, the sanctity of marriage haven't been at the center of much discussion in past years. It has been an area that has been greatly attacked all throughout history. We mentioned the church at Corinth. The church at Corinth found itself in a... Getting on a little rabbit trail. The the church in Corinth found itself in a city that was full of sexual abuses. Not going to spend much time here, but I will say that, that prostitution in the name of religion was prevalent in that city. In fact, it's pretty clear that there were some in that church that had been former temple prostitutes. And then there were others in that church that had visited those same people before they became Christians. Wouldn't that be awkward? It was. How did Paul deal with this? Well, in 
1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, we read this. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral or idolaters or idolaters, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards or revilers, nor swindles will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. Here, Paul reminds them that there are people that will not inherit the kingdom of God. Those that practice the same activities that they had been a part of. Whether they were former homosexuals, those who cheated on their spouses, those who had relationships outside of marriage. In fact, Paul's language here details all sorts of sexual sin, as well as other things, theft, drunkenness, greed. And he says, such were some of you. I mean, we would say that about this room. But that's the great part here. Your sin isn't the end of the story. But you were washed. You were made clean. You were made right with God, not by anything within you, but because of him who did the washing. So you don't stand here before the church or before God as a former temple prostitute or whatever, but you stand as, like everybody else, one who was washed and made right with God, just as we all are. In other words, Paul is saying that you're all on equal footing here. This is the gospel. You've been washed. You don't deserve to inherit the kingdom of God, but you will because of what Christ Jesus has done. And that goes for all of you, he says. But what about the one that says, boy, this is just awkward. I mean, we have people from all of these different backgrounds. Shouldn't we sort of segregate into groups, right? The, the former, whatever it is, you fill in the blank. The former homosexuals over there. The divorced people over here in this group, because for them to be mixed with the, the marrieds, that would be, be really difficult. I, I think you're seeing what I'm getting at. How did Paul deal with this? Well, that's why we have this whole discussion on spiritual gifts in the life of the church, on what the church is. A body made up of different parts, different members. Will the eye say to the ear, I don't need you? That would be foolish. God has placed us all in the, the body together for a reason. That is the church as God designed it. We wouldn't have designed it that way. We wouldn't have did it that way. And the church is, is different from the world. This is how God designed it. My, my point there was to highlight that it isn't only in our present day that we're dealing with sexual issues in the life of the church and perversion, and, and the church is, is, has been dealing with this. Paul dealt with it because it was a, a major issue. Now it's also true that the people before us, not that long ago, would not have seen uh, some of the LGBTQ plus agenda coming. What's happening today is an, an attack on, on biblical marriage and, and sexuality in ways that we haven't seen. The legalization of same-sex marriage has caused the church to go back and to find why, biblically speaking, marriage can only be between a man and a woman. 
in our culture. There is a, a general discomfort and distress when it comes to matters of sexuality because the goalposts seem to be continually moving as to what is seen as acceptable. And this isn't a matter that only concerns what goes on in the privacy of homes, but businesses that try to operate on biblical principles. It has to do with the biblical mandate to help those who are less fortunate. Just think of adoption agencies, for instance, that are operating on biblical, biblical principles concerning marriage and family seem to be singled out. We've already seen that some of these cave to cultural pressure instead of fighting for biblical principles. Bethany Christian Services is a, the latest there. But then others in some states see no alternative besides close their doors. Caved or closed. And that's what's happening, and it's heartbreaking. So we say in, in light of all of this, in light of the, the, the cultural revolution that, that, is, that is before us, why is promiscuous sexual relationships and unfaithfulness in marriage so wrong? Sounds like a dumb question to some. Of course it's wrong. Well, I think we need to think about it because it's the basis for a host of other things that are going to impact us at some point in some way or another. Francis Schaeffer saw this coming, and he says that promiscuous sexual relationships and marital unfaithfulness are wrong for three major reasons. He says that the first reason that he gives is, is one of the first that, that we give to those who ask, and it's because God has said so. Why is it wrong? Because God said it was wrong. God is God, therefore it is God that gets to define what is right and wrong. And we need to get, we need to get this, that, that something isn't wrong because we determine it to be wrong. It is wrong because God said it is wrong. And on the flip side, something is good because it is related to the character of God. When it comes to something that is morally right, it's because it corresponds to God's character in some way. So if God tells us that something is wrong, it is wrong, and it doesn't matter how we feel about it. Someone might feel like the, the certain sin that they're involved in shouldn't be wrong. But if God has said it's wrong, it doesn't matter. That's a little harsh, I think, for some. One could say, well, that version of God really presents one who is on a, a power trip and he's, he's uh, oppressing his, his creatures with his, with his power. It's wrong because I say it. It assumes that God doesn't have a good reason for commanding these things. And that's where we get into Schaefer's second reason why promiscuity and marital unfaithfulness is, is wrong. And that is that... It is these things are not good for us as God created us. God made us in such a way that these things are not good for us. Morality has to do with how God created us. If something is immoral, it's because it doesn't, score, it doesn't correspond with how God created us to function. Let me say it this way. We are truly happy and experience life as God meant for us to experience when we obey God and live as he created us to live. 
The flip side is true as well. When we do not obey the laws of God, the path that we are on is increasingly destructive. Of course, those people on those paths don't see it that way. They think that they understand happiness and joy, but they do not understand and they cannot comprehend the destructive nature of the path that they are riding. There is another reason why promiscuous, uh, promiscuous sexual relations and marital unfaithfulness are wrong, and it really gets into what we've been talking about here, and it's because it breaks the picture of what God intends marriage to be. Here's how Schaefer says it. He says, marriage is set forth to be the illustration of the relationship of God and his people and of Christ and his church. The relationship of God with people rests on his character and sexual relationships outside of marriage breaks this parallel which the Bible draws between marriage and the relationship of God with his people. The scriptures are clear. Husbands are to love as Christ loves, and women are to love as the church loves Christ. Schaefer says, therefore, I quote, if we break God's illustration by such a relationship, it is a serious thing. Notice that he said, if we break the illustration, not if we break the command. I I think that... Breaking the command is breaking the illustration. Some at this point might say, well, I'm not married yet, so this doesn't really pertain to me, right, young people. Well, this isn't really true. Most that are not married yet, who are too young to get married, are still thinking about it. The person who is not yet married must determine to have the highest standards when it comes to marriage and therefore uh, the dating relationship, which is the method for evaluating who you will marry. I remember when I was a youth pastor, I had a conversation about uh, the purpose of dating. I I don't know why, this was a long time ago, but I still just remember this, this conversation And I was looking back on that, and it's so interesting because within that youth group, there was a couple that was dating there. Uh, They went on to to get married and are still married today. But in that group, we came to the conclusion that dating was, was supposed to be fun. It was about getting to know one another. It was about all of those things that you like about dating. But from a Christian worldview, you could not in good conscience divorce the dating relationship from marriage. You couldn't do it. Not that you're actively thinking about getting married when you're 16 or whatever, but you're evaluating. You have to be. You can't, you can't not. You're evaluating the kind of person on some level who you want to marry. What I'm saying is that we will approach the whole dating thing differently when we understand the purpose of marriage as God intends it a display of the relationship of Christ in his church. When you're preparing to enter into that illustration, it changes your whole perspective on finding a mate. There are serious questions that need to be asked. For instance, the young woman would have to ask, can that person be as Jesus Christ to me? Not, can he be my God? But, Can I love him 
like the church is to love Christ? Could I be wholly devoted to him like that? Young man must ask if they could love a, a woman enough to give himself for her. Am I willing to, to cover up her faults and be patient with her as, as God is, is patient with me? Am I willing to die for her? Has God died for his people? Now there are others who are married and in marriage, you know the, the difficulties and I don't want to minimize this. I know that every situation is, is different and that marriage can be difficult. Let me change that. It is difficult. Not continually not just talking about partners not getting along. I'm talking about uh, one spouse watch another go through a time of, of suffering or even watch one spouse watch another pass away. There, there's a myriad of ways in which marriage is difficult. But the fact is, this is going to be hard. That's how it was designed. It wasn't designed to be a walk in the park in every respect. Like we said before, it's true that that there's great joy and that these things are, are worth it in the end, right? We, we experience life as God intends it when we follow his, his plan, his path. We, we get that. But, but going through difficulties, not giving up is a display as to how God does not give up on us. We live in a, a world where divorce is an easy option. It happens frequently. But it also especially happens within the church. And when it does, it, it, it sends a message that God gives up on us. That when things get tough, when things get hard, we just turn and, and run. We unhitch. The fact is, the love we must have for one another is a love that overcomes difficulties by changing ourselves and winning the other person over as we continually put the standards of Christ Jesus first. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that leaving a spouse is never an option. I'm not getting into any of that. What I am saying here now is that the way we love one another, especially when things are not easy, is a display of how Christ loves the church. And that's the way we must love. There's one more point here when it comes to the, the bride and the bridegroom. So not only does this point to the deity of Christ, the conduct of the church, the standard of, of sex and, and marriage, but it also says something about the return of Christ. In our present situation, the church is, is betrothed or engaged to, to Christ. We're waiting for that final consummation, the, the marriage supper of the, of the Lamb. Right? We're, we're waiting for the, the marriage to be consummated. The, the question here is, does an engaged woman look forward to her wedding day? Of course she does. So we should look forward to the return of Christ. Now, here's the question, and this is the question I want to leave you with in closing. And that is, how do you wait for the return of Christ? As you start thinking about that question, let me just tell you a couple of stories. I got these from, from Donald Barnhouse. Uh, the, the first is this. 
At the time of the, the First World War, there was a, a young uh, aristocrat in, in England who married a, a woman, then he went off to the trenches, uh, and he went off to war. The, the young bride uh, wrote that she was very preoccupied with the, the war work and was in a, working in a, as a nurse in a hospital. She apologized for not writing very often. She was spending long hours every day attending to the wounded that continually came before her. Sometime later, when her husband was coming home and he was coming back on leave, a friend kind of had an idea of what might be going on there, and he told the husband that you should surprise her. And the husband did that, and he went to the hospital where she said she worked, and they had never heard of her. She was not at the apartment. Somebody said that she might be at the tea dance at the Ritz. So the husband went to, to find her, and he found her with another man. The man, her husband, found out that she was, uh, what was all going on, and he was granted a divorce by the British authorities. The other story takes place around the same time, but in the western part of the United States, there was a, a young couple there that had plans to be married. They were all ready. The only thing they were doing is waiting for the date. They had a small cottage. They had excitingly furnished it already. And then uh, war was declared, and the young man who was in the reserve was called to active duty. He was uh, going to be sent to the Mexican border, and then he would be shipped off to France. The day before he, he left, the young woman came to him and, and said to him, I know that the date of our wedding hasn't come yet, but you might be ordered overseas right now. You might be killed, and I would much rather go through life bearing your name than to go through life always explaining that the man I loved was killed in the war. Let's get married now. The next day they were married. For his honeymoon, he went to be with the troops, and the bride was all alone, living in her little cottage. She was very lonely. It was a very difficult time. She longed for the day when she would see her husband again. Day after day, uh, the husband wrote her, and, and, and he would send her gifts whenever he could. He sent her a, a Navajo rug, uh, Mexican lace, Indian pottery. Months passed, and, and the day came when she was just so lonely. She, she got out in front of the, the fireplace in the little cottage. She spread out. She was reading all the letters. She spread out all the gifts on the floor, and she sat there, and she just cried. Suddenly, as she was crying and as she was reading these letters, there was a step on the porch and the door opened and he was there. He sent a, a telegram, but it had gotten delayed. And he arrived before the telegram got to her. And when she saw him, she jumped to her feet. The letters scattered. Some of them went into the fire. She knocked pottery over. It was broken, but she didn't care. She didn't care at all because her husband had returned. And in having him, she had everything. Barnhouse tells those stories and then he writes this. Dear friends, our Lord Jesus is coming back. And he is going to find you and me in one of those two attitudes. Will you be flirting with the world? Or will you be occupied with his love letters, his gifts, his work, will you be thinking of him? It's a good question. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this sermon resource from BethelMBChurch.org. If you'd like to learn more about Bethel Church or find other resources, please visit our website at BethelMBChurch.org. Bethel Church exists to bring glory to God by promoting the joyful worship of Jesus Christ both here and abroad.